Thanks for listening to the Toronto Legends Podcast. I am your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is Matt Dusk, the platinum-selling five-time Juno Award-nominated singer and songwriter. Old school music is his game, and he has been hashtag winning at this game with three number one radio hits, three gold albums, and three platinum albums. If you are swooning for crooning, you will want to catch Matt Dusk sing Sinatra on his current tour that makes stops not only here in Canada, but around the world. While Matt is on a brief break from his tour, I am very pleased that he has made some time for us. Welcome, Matt Dusk, to Toronto Legends. Thank you for joining me. Where are you and how are you? Andrew, it is a wonderful day. I am in my very favorite town or city in the world. It's called Toronto. Uh, being biased, I um, I have to say I've traveled quite a bit and still this is my favorite place in the world. Just got off tour for a couple of days to talk to you. Well, that is excellent. And I second it. You and I love our city and we're going to talk a lot about that. As mentioned, you are now on a break during your tour. May I ask what is happening in the Dusk household these days? Who makes up the household and what's going on over there? So I'm very fortunate to live in a multi-generational home. So I've got my mom, I've got my brother and his girlfriend, myself, my wife, and my kid. Then we have a number of uh, people who squat for weeks and months at a time. (laughs) So we like to say we live in a village. (laughs) Well, as they say, it takes a village to raise a family, raise children. So that's great. How is the tour going? How long have you been on the road? And, and how much longer does your tour go from here? Well, uh, it's everything started in March of 2022. Uh, I did a month over in Poland. And then in May, did a month over in Quebec. Had the summer off. And now we pick up doing Canada for another month. And we go over to uh, Europe. And then blah, 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 blah. It's a whole year tour. We're doing about 120 shows. It's it's quite amazing to see how Sinatra's music really transcends different regions and different cultures. It's one of those things that um, no matter where you go, someone can sing along poorly with you. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what I love about this music. It's it's very inclusive. It's it's a very community thing. And it's good to be back on the road instead of doing live streams again. That was terrible. Yeah, absolutely. It must be great to be out there. Well, Matt, let's go all the way back and get the Matt Dusk story. You were born right here in Toronto. When and where? So born in November uh, 1978 uh, up in North York. I think it was called uh, North York General Hospital, I think. It sounds Shout like a out soap to opera. North York General Hospital. Yeah. And I lived here my whole life, uh, pretty much. I mean, there was some times where... Uh, I lived in Las, uh, Las Vegas for four years. I lived in Los Angeles for about a year. Um, but unfortunately, my heart is here and always will be. And it's just so great to see how the city has progressed over the years. I mean, it's really a great place. But this is where I started learning how to sing jazz. Is right here in Toronto. And did you have siblings? What did your parents do? What neighborhood did you grow up in? So I grew up in Weston, uh, which was at Jane and Lawrence. Um, till about 1987, then moved to Etobicoke, and I've got a brother. Uh, my father was a tool and die tradesman. I learned how to do pretty much everything that owning a house requires. From him. <laughs> That's a good skill. 
And uh, my mom was uh, an administrator at York University. So I've been part of this community for, oh my gosh, I'm going to date myself, 44 years. <laughs> and and where did you go to uh, junior high and high school? I went to school at St. Michael's Choir School, which is downtown by the Eaton Center, uh, from 1986 through 1997, then to York University for economics and ended up in music. What? Yeah, we're going to talk about that transition. (laughs) Matt, from an early age, you wanted to become a performer. At the age of seven, as you mentioned, you were accepted into St. Michael's Choir School, where you remained for 11 years. I understand you worked at that time mostly on opera and classical repertoire. Yeah, they, my parents sent me to an all-boys choir school, not my choice. Um, <laughs> and then they wondered why, as a teenager, I wanted to go into music. What? Who would have known? It's been a long day. Um, yeah. It was, uh, you know, it was a it was a great opportunity as a as a young kid growing up downtown. I mean, I was really at where Dundas Square is now. I mean, I've seen that place change over the last you know thirty thirty five years. The the interesting part was the, the the school that I went to St. Michael's Choir School we had the opportunity to tour all over the world from the Caribbean to Europe to North America and at a young age imagine being nine or ten years old your parents putting you on a bus and saying see you in two weeks so that's <laughs> that's where the camaraderie and the uh, the love of touring came from just because you got to see so many things and not only learn new things but also be grateful for where you're from as well Sure. And you got some great life skills, obviously. In 1998, you won the Canadian National Exhibition Rising Star Competition. What do you remember about that experience? I assume it was during the CNE. I don't know if you were distracted by the food building and the ring toss, but how did you keep your focus? (laughs) I ate too many marshmallows covered in coconut. You know, remember (laughs) those? (laughs) Um, You know, I think it was 1997. Or was it 96? I forget. Anyway, I tried out. Um, there were, you know, it was this ta- talent competition. And I first discovered Sinatra at around 1995 or 96. And I, I quickly discovered karaoke cassettes. That was another thing. So I took my cassettes to this little talent show, which was uh, actually funny enough now that I think about it, it the the auditions were at the Queen Elizabeth Theater which is where I'm performing in December I didn't even think okay. about that wow and wow. you know all these performers performed and you know I didn't get in I, I didn't even hit the top 100 and then Sinatra died um, the December of the next year um, and I was like okay well I'll try out in two groups and then I guess because of the timing people love Sinatra again. And I, I won this whole thing, which was yeah. <laughs> timing is everything in life. Right. And that was a very, very cool opportunity because not only did you get to perform in front of, you know, hundreds or thousands of people a night at the, at these competitions, but you also got to meet other performers who were like you. And, you know, I don't know if you know this, they're still doing that competition. And I still, no, I didn't it's, realize that it's, it's a big thing. Um, I, I, I still think it's an awesome opportunity for kids to get out there and do what they love to do. Well, it was great for you. You rode the wave. Now, you, Matt, intended to take over the family business in 1998. You went to York University to study yeah. economics. What was the family business? So my dad was a tool and die tradesman. So I learned how to you know do carpentry and work with machines. And you know as a kid, 
ever since I was six years old, you know, as a small business owner, you know, childcare is expensive. So, you know, with the best babysitting thing, put your <laughs> kid on a corrugated, you know, die machine. <laughs> so my entire life I was stuck learning how to fix things and do things. And I hated my life. Of course, my friends were eating <laughs> cheesies and playing Mega Man while I was repairing rotors on vehicles. So <laughs> now that it's like, I look at that as a blessing because trying to find any trades guys these days, is almost impossible. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but after one year of economics, you decided to switch to music. Tell us about that transition and, and you attended some very interesting master classes. Yeah. So I, because I was working with my father for almost 12 years at that point, I mean, like seriously, like any day my dad was kind of teaching me to, to do stuff. Um, my idea was I'd go into university for economics to get like a business sense so I could kind of take this very small business and continue and learn about it. But then after after my first year, I realized that economics has nothing to do with running a small business. Right? <laughs> it's it's uh, macroeconomics is much more world policy, and I wanted to quit just to go full time with uh, to work with with my dad. And my mom said, you know, listen, you have all the time in the world to to grow up, just get any degree. So I was like, wicked. Uh, I'll take my karaoke uh, dreams with me. <laughs> Try out. Uh, at York University and did my audition and I, I must have been like Bill Murray from Saturday Night Live crooning you know like yeah. just brutal hey you baby <laughs> and you know looking back like I didn't know much about jazz but I knew much of you know a lot about that music and you know they only let one one student in that year uh, and the program was very small and I was like here I won this big competition and now I'm in the jazz program. I'm so good. You know, I remember the first day of class, my teacher said after class, like, man, I want to talk to you. I want to talk to you. And I was like, oh, okay. So it went to his office. He's like, listen, kids, you got a great voice, but you can't sing jazz worth crap. We're going to teach you how to do that. And I was like, like the emperor's clothes were just off. You know, I was completely yeah. naked. I, I, I felt like an idiot. And then became my my training with some of in my opinion most formidable years of my life especially having the opportunity to hang with oscar peterson and and master classes and him tell you stories and you know i got indoctrinated into that into that group pretty quick and you know almost 25 years later here i am well you you took advantage of that very humbling experience to oh, yes. harass the ring and and take advantage of you attended, as you say, master classes taught by none other than the late, great Oscar Peterson. And Matt, you were, in fact, awarded the Oscar Peterson Scholarship uh, ahead of your graduation in 2002. That must have been meaningful. I didn't even know. They told me I got it. Someone nominated me. <laughs> <laughs> it was great. I was just like, wow. How, um... You know, I think Oscar Peterson was the first jazz musician, like, like a famous professional jazz musician I met. When I was about 13 years old, he was, I believe he was, or sometime around there, he was chancellor of York University. And um, there was his, um, I guess, his ceremony where they were bringing him in. And I had this program and it was all, you know, had the nice string on the side and white. And, and I remember I went up to him and I said, you know, Mr. Mr. Peterson, would you, would you mind 
um, signing this for me. And he looks at me and goes, uh, young blood, keep going, kid. <laughs> and he's, you know, and it was, it was great. I told him that, that story, is, he laughed. That is an excellent interaction. And it boosted mm-hmm. you post York University. This led to your career as a jazz singer. You recorded four albums independently before you secured a record deal in 2003. How did this record deal come about? Well, I was kind of at the beginning of the Napster MP3 movement, I guess, in like the mid to like mid to late 90s. And there was this website called mp3.com and it was an independent place where, where people, artists could upload their own music. So I was recording. I was one of those kids where, you know, because I grew up with, with my dad uh, in the business and, you know, being a sales guy, you're constantly getting no for an answer. I was pretty good at getting rejected. Um, so I, you know, made these video cassettes. I, I, I called all these clubs. You know, I think I sent out like 25 kits and I kept on following up and, you know, three or four of them hired me, which is a terrible ratio. Um, but I was working four or five nights a week at 19, right? So this was um, this this was a big part, I guess, of being a, a, a working musician. And you know, we're we're bringing in our charts, our instruments. We're playing till three, four in the morning. Um, and you know, record labels they start to when they see that people are doing well on their own um, and they're you know, bringing people out and they're, they're getting paid for it, they take notice of it. And it also you know, coincided with the fact that Nora Jones had just won, I think, eight Grammys, I think it was in 2002 mm-hmm. or something, and Michael Bublé just got signed, so there was, um, there was big interest in that jazz crooning, you know, kind of uh, easy listening music. And that's when all hell broke loose. They're like, oh, there's another, another Canadian. Go get him. <laughs> right? Well, good timing. But as you say, yeah. Matt, even though your ratio of hitting was low, you only need one. You only need right. one connection. And you took advantage of the times and your talent. Your career got a big league boost and big things happened for you in 2004. Plenty of people get famous for starring in reality shows. But you got famous for kind of being in the background of a reality show, if I may set this up for you. Yeah. In 2004, you were invited to the Golden Nugget Casino in Las Vegas to perform as the in-house entertainer on Mark Burnett's reality drama, The Casino. This was an American reality television series broadcast on the Fox Network. In 2004, followed two dot-com millionaires, Tom Breitling and Tim Poster, as they managed the Golden Nugget Hotel and Casino, the grand dame of downtown Las Vegas, not on the more popular at the time Las Vegas Strip. The show was created by Mark Burnett, the creator of both Survivor and The Apprentice with former U.S. President Donald Trump. How did you get involved with this? How did it help your career trajectory? Well, um, because I was signed to Universal, um, obviously they have their fingers in you know many different things and some colleagues that used to work with the company still keep in touch with the people at Universal and one of the um, music supervisors was like, "Hey, you know, we're with one of the people I was working with at Universal says, "Hey, you know, we're looking for some music for this old school Las Vegas casino just because they want to bring it back to the heydays of like the '60s." And um, one of the colleagues I was working with said, "Well, guess what? We're working with this kid who's um, 
exactly that. He does this in Canada, and they're like, oh, okay, well, why don't we do this? We'll invite him down. We'll record it all. And if the, uh, if the owners, Tim and Tom, if they like him, we'll toss him in the show. Funny enough, uh, they came, they saw, and, you know, it was like, not only do we connect on the music level, to this day, we still keep in contact quite regularly. I still go back down in, uh, to Vegas quite a bit. And we, we, we built this bond on the idea of that the best music of all time was Las Vegas in the 60s. Yeah. So in return, in regards to, you know, the career tra- trajectory, I went from playing nightclubs to being, you know, on national uh, syndicated television with 10 million people a week, you know, watch. It was it, it, it was pretty interesting going from just playing at a nightclub for, you know, 50 people to walking down the street and getting asked for autographs. <laughs> yeah. Well, it must have been amazing. Matt, your debut album, Two Shots, was released June 5th, 2004, was certified gold in Canada. The hit single from that album was Two Shots a Happy, One Shot a Sad, that was written by Bono and The Edge, performed by none other than you, Matt Dusk, what were your interactions, if any, with Bono or The Edge? So that song was written by Bono and The Edge for, for Frank. Uh, unfortunately, Frank died before he even had a chance to record it. And um, the song was was kind of, I wouldn't say lost, but it was in deep catalog. You uh, two released it as a, as a B-side on a single. And um, when we were looking for material for Two Shots, the record, got a, a note from... The publisher saying, all right, we got this song written by Bono on the Edge for Frank. He never recorded. How would you like to record it? <laughs> where, where, you had me at hello. I was just like, well, let me check my schedule. I'm quite busy, actually. Uh, so I recorded the demo, and they're like, listen, they're going to have to approve it. Um, so my management sent everything to them. They loved the song. Um, and then they gave it not only as a title of the track of... Uh, my debut record with Universal, but also gave it, you know, free to the the Mark Burnett show, the casino, because they were like, let's give this 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 kid a chance. And, you know, I'm forever grateful for that. Well, absolutely. You were, I'm, I think you're about 26 years old at the time. This was described as a reality drama. Was the casino scripted or unscripted? Well, I'm going to let you guess. I, I would say I'm, I get we become more cynical since when I watched it and I did watch it back in the day, I thought it was completely unscripted. And now now that we learn about there's all these reality shows that have scripts, I'm going to say maybe it was pushed in a certain way. But I, I will note in my research, this was the first reality series to be shot with high definition video cameras. Yeah, crazy. And they shot an unbelievable 270 hours of footage for each hour long episode. It's, it's, I mean, like, so what, what they did is it's basically called unscripted drama, right? Um, so they would film stuff. And of course, when cameras are on you, there is a, they put you in a position to perform. Um, I think there's actually some sort of law or some sort of effect that as soon as you put a lens on somebody, things change. But what would happen is after they would shoot everything and they edited stuff together, they'd be like, oh, crap, we're missing that 18-second filler, right? So now what they do is they do cutaways. But back then, they would do, okay, kid, you were wearing this shirt with this pants. Your hair looked like this. All right, now 
go in. We got to figure out this part. Um, it was it was surreal. I mean, specifically because you know now looking at how the old CRT televisions were four by three going to high definition 1080. I mean, what it, it, it was quite amazing. But the amount of crew and stuff they had was insane. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's you got to hand it to Mark Burnett. He was really uh, an innovator. Um, it was. Let's it was talk great. about that. Yeah. What was it like working with Mark Burnett? If I'm not mistaken, this was post Survivor and pre Apprentice. Uh, post Apprentice. Okay. This was his third series, and um, you know, very, very, very nice guy. He, I used to hang out with him a little. I want to say quite a lot. Like when I did, I'd hang out with him for hours at a time. We'd have drinks, eat. You know, um, he was always very complimentary of. Uh, of the music I did and was very encouraging and you know I, I didn't think too much of it at the time because again I was just there to do music but looking back it was I learned a lot from him you know I learned a lot from him on how stressful the uh, the business is how much there is this thing to perform how much money is on the line his name mm -hmm. and you got to remember that this is only his third show you know fast forward now you know geez 25 almost what 20 years he you can get away with so much more right now yeah. you can do a whole reality show on an iphone but back then yeah. the the investment was huge now matt you seem to get more involved in the action as the series progressed it was originally more Tom and Tim focused, but here comes this Matt Dust kid. Was this pre-planned or did it evolve? I think the story arc of the line was always that I was supposed to end up at the main showroom. It did take work though. There was a lot of stuff I think behind the scenes. I think some of the best stuff was never ever captured, of course. Hmm. This is always, you know, trying to like me solicit people on the streets, getting them to come in, doing interviews, dropping off donuts at all the concierges, trying to bribe them to send guests their way, handing out free yeah. tickets. Um, you know, to, to, to fill 400 seats in Vegas is, is, is an accomplishment. Um, but it is possible if you, if you, if you do a lot of work. And the cool thing was, is that because we had all the cameras around there and people knew, there was a certain attraction to seeing, oh, I want to be on TV. So yeah, <laughs> it, it, made, it made for a good story arc. Now, apparently, uh, these co-owners, Tim and Tom, were not particularly happy with the show's portrayal of the Golden Nugget. It got canceled before the last three episodes of the series could be shown. Fast forward to today, you kind of alluded to it. Do you still keep in touch with Tom and Tim, the owners oh, of the Golden yeah. Nugget? All the time. I probably... I probably texted with Tim like two to, two nights ago. Yeah. So, so, I mean, we always talk about the Tim, Tom and myself. We, you know, we talk about what the show was, what happened with it, why, you know, some of the reviews were negative. Why again, because there was so much story arcing that didn't allow for the natural progression of what was funny and what was interesting to happen. Um, However, though, we all agree that the best thing about that show was, and I'm not even a joke about this, but it's like we became extremely good friends, meaning that, you know, I, I moved down there for four years hmm. uh, because they were my my hangout group. Like it was like, yeah. it, and, and, you know, having having lived in Vegas, it's very, 
it's very difficult to create long lasting friendships. And here I am, you know, 20 years later, still talking about them. I often compared to having friendships in Las Vegas to kind of like planting a flower in the desert. And if you don't water it constantly, it's gone. Like everybody there has a story. If it's real or not, is you got to get through it. Yeah. Eventually I came back to Toronto because the watering was way too difficult. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Matt, that's probably true for all relationships, but that's a good analogy. Since you are in touch with them, it would be helpful. I watched the show originally. What is the latest and greatest? Do those two gentlemen still own that casino or are they moved on to different businesses? So what happened was the the reason why the, the show kind of came to a close is, you know, they bought the casino, I think it was for $212 million. And eight months later, they were offered $355 million for it. Cha-ching. Yeah. So think about that. Like, and I remember Tim and I going to, to lunch one day because I, I knew that, that the casino was being solicited by uh, Landry's, which is the, um, the, the restaurant business in the States. I knew that they were being solicited to, to, to purchase out their shares. And I remember sitting with Tim. He's like, you know, I, I won't use profanity. Um, I'll just keep it clean. But he did say he's like, the the take is too large to say no but i know it's the wrong choice for me Hmm. and he goes but everything i learned about in business tells me we got to sell right because it wasn't only their money they had bondholders they had investors they had um and you know talking to him years later there definitely was um i don't want to call it regret because you know, can't take things back. But I think there was definitely moments of, was it the right choice for me? Yeah. Right. So, you know, they're obviously 20 years later, they're still involved in, in many different things. These guys grew up in Las Vegas. They were part of the casino business. Um, you never know. They're, they're always on the hunt for something as exciting as the golden nugget was. Yeah. Well, it was certainly a time, and it's very interesting that you kept in touch and were able to build this friendship. So as you say, that's a great outcome from the experience. The best part of it. Let's fast forward, Matt, if I may. After 12 studio albums that have racked up numerous gold and platinum awards along the way, you have returned to your roots with Matt Dusk Sings Sinatra. This is an up-tempo tribute to the chairman of the board himself, the man who sang some of the most beloved songs of all time and who inspired you to sing in the first place. Matt, why are you so enthralled with Frank Sinatra and what has he meant to you? So interesting that this 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 record or these two records that I, I put out, they actually weren't actually supposed to be released. Um, I recorded them in 2019 and <clears throat> a lot of these songs I did starting out in the clubs, right? I mean, it was just like, fly me to the moon, I've got you under my skin, come fly with me. And they were just, you know, I'm a... I'm a teenager. Uh, uh, it was fun. Great way to meet new people. Great way to meet girls, you know? <laughs> yep. Um, it's 2019. I was like, okay, I've been recording these songs my whole life. Or sorry, uh, performing them. Let's record them. And, you know, I got together some of the best guys in Toronto that had not only played with Sinatra or been playing these tracks for 30, 40 years. And 
I was like, okay, guys, we're going to go in the studio one day. We're going to record everything live off the floor. Let's see how many songs we could get. And we got six hours. Anyway, I, I had high expectations that we could get maybe eight songs done. And the funny thing was that day we actually started an hour and a half late. And I was like, oh, crap. There goes our day. Maybe get six. Anyway, yeah. we recorded 17 songs and finished early. So, I mean, wow. like. It was one of the most serendipitous uh, recording experiences I ever had. It was super easy. You know, I went to the LCBO. I got a bunch of bottles of scotch. And we weren't supposed to drink them till you know, after. <laughs> for the band, you know, by like 2, 3 o'clock. It's all going around. People are laughing. They're saying, I can't remember last time I had such fun on a recording session. And I just put it in my pocket. I just put that yeah. in my pocket. It's like, okay, I did do it. And then the pandemic hit. And um, there was this longing for things, things past where, you know, what, what happened before. And, that, you know, that's the reason why the, the, the record came out. But for me, why I loved it, the, the record so much is not only because of the players, because it was almost effortless for me, because there was no expectation of needing to do anything. Mm-hmm. And listening back, I was like, you know, most times when you record records as an artist or, you know, any sort of creation that anybody makes, you look back years later and go, ah, I should have done this, eh, should have done that, eh. This is one of the few records I don't really have a lot of that in it. I have this phrase that says, uh, art is never finished, only abandoned. Mm-hmm. But that was a moment where we captured something that is the essence of recording to capture. So um, I noticed that there was a longing for this, um, you know, retro stuff or a longing for the same kind of music I, I love. And I said, let's, let's, let's put it out. And, uh, that's the music I fell in love with, and it's still the music I love today. Well, you've said that the music of Frank Sinatra is not only timeless, it's also the soundtrack to many different parts of people's lives. How is this applied to your own life? Well, I mean, I have to say that a lot of the live performances I do, there's the audience. Um, each of those songs that I perform have a special connection to a lot of the people in the audience. You know, it might be, you know, that was the song that my father and I danced to at our wedding, or that was the time when, you know, my grandmother died and she wanted this song to be sang at my funeral and everybody carries this like very genuine emotional weight to the audience, which makes it very authentic. Um, you know, we, we often romanticize the past and no better music to do it. So not only is it the soundtrack to my life, but also to theirs, it's, it's, it's one of the most amazing ways you can communicate with somebody by sharing those, you know, wholesome, wholesome emotions. And here's the deal. Frank's dead, right? So, <laughs> I, I'm the other guy that that you got to go see because, you know, if he was still alive, I'd probably go see him. <laughs> yeah. Well, Matt, in your own life, you have sang his songs to your own daughter when she was born. And you've even sung them at divorce parties, I understand. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> it was funny when my when my daughter was born, um, you know, she was very, very much tied to uh, her mother. And, you know, I think a lot of guys who have been fathers have always said we're kind of useless in the first bunch of years um most of our wives would agree um but (laughs) i had i had one uh i had one very good talent 
um, is that I could sing. But here's the funny thing. My daughter, when she would cry, I would hold her. And I wouldn't sing a lullaby. I would sing full voice. Like, full on, loud. And it was like rings of power were coming out of my voice and it would knock her unconscious. And she'd be <laughs> in my arms and she'd be like, ah, ah, ah. She'd fall right asleep and I'd be just yelling and yelling. And uh, <laughs> it, was, uh, it was, everyone just laughed, but it was a great way. So my superpower. <laughs> I, I, that's a great superpower because I remember for my daughter, who's now 15, I used to have to carry her on that carrier and it couldn't be yeah. still yet. How many times I went up and down the stairs. Don't move. I like your, I like your trick. That's good. Yeah. Try it next time. She starts yelling and go, go, oh. <laughs> yeah. Well, these days she doesn't talk to me. So we'll, oh, okay. <laughs> we'll have to turn that around. To that's, forward to. <laughs> that's teenagehood. <laughs> Matt, what song do you close every show with? Uh, I'll let you guess. <laughs> it's got to be the Frank Sinatra, Pal Anka co-written song, My Way. Yeah. Uh, this song obviously holds significance for all your audiences. You've said there is no show without that song. There, <clears throat> There's two songs that really affect me in my show. Um, one of them is, is My Way, and one of them is Two Shots. And the reason is, is you know, I, I remember being a young kid in university doing, you know, learning how to sing jazz. And my teacher, who is now long past, um, we, were, we were talking about criticism of younger people singing jazz music, because this is obviously um, a, a critique that was given to me when I first came out, as well as every other young jazz singer. What I learned was he, he told me, he's like, listen, pain is relative, number one. Number two, life experience is relative. Who is to say that um, because you, you, you have difficulty paying the rent here, it's any different than someone who's homeless somewhere else? You feel, feel the same thing. And he's like, if you lacked the experience, which I think we all do till the day we die, right? Because I think we're always learning something. Mm -hmm. You know, as we get older, we know there's people that unfortunately are given us like a, a timeline to when they'll 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 pass. So if if you were diagnosed with some terrible disease and given a, a certain amount of time, or um, something happened to you where you knew you were going to pass sooner than you thought, who's to say that your life experience doesn't put itself into any song? Who's to say that my experience isn't isn't what I feel? And with Two Shots and, and, and My Way, as I get older, the lyric meaning constantly changes. Every gig, I'm constantly given flashbacks of like, okay, I took what my teacher said. If I knew if tomorrow was going to be my last day, what would I say? What would mm -hmm. I say? And I say that to the audience. And I think the audience would agree. When you put someone else in their own shoes and say, how do you feel? There is no greater song that evokes emotions for me as My Way and Two Shots. And I can see the direct effect of people with My Way, right eye to eye. Yeah. Well, you're obviously very cognizant of your audience and how they're reacting. Most to the important part. The I learned that over, uh, over the pandemic, how important. I always knew they were important, but I'll never go back to singing to a lens. It just is brutal. <laughs> Matt, I have to ask you, I find this very interesting. Obviously, in addition to your popularity here in Canada, 
you are big in Lithuania, Germany, Poland. Why these particular countries? <laughs> Maybe you have some uh, background to that. I think because the English isn't the first language and they don't understand <laughs> what I'm saying. <laughs> but um, they know all these songs. Again, it's it's the uh, it's it's the community of jazz, the history of of of, of crooning the um, the um, the tradition of interpretation. I mean, you got to think that. Back 60, 70 years ago, when these songs were being written, the world was operated more by publishers versus artists, where meaning that a publisher would have a songwriter, say Cole Porter or uh, a Cy Coleman, they would release the song, and then you know 60 artists would, would release the song, and it would be on radio many different ways. So the song had an incredible distance to travel, and also there wasn't... Um, there wasn't a lot of stream of songs because it was limited to radio. You know, we didn't have the internet. We didn't have all these things. So these, these songs that were carried by multiple artists fell into the hearts of many different reasons for different people. Like just, we were talking about my way. I mean, you have everyone from Tom Jones to Elvis Presley to, you know, Frank Sinatra and each of these artists um, will have their own fans that say that their version is the best. So fast forward now 70 years, you have a tradition of parents who knew this, these songs, who played these songs at home where their kids um, heard it. Take a look at Christmas time, the holidays. Um, you know, the holidays are still the, the, it's, it's the last part of our, you know, of our lives that are still have tradition, tradition in music. Like every, 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 you know, December, we're waiting to hear Let It Snow or, yeah, you know, Last Christmas by Wham or uh, Mariah Carey. You know, it's like yeah. those traditions have carried this, this, this genre throughout every single culture. And that's what I love about it. You can, you can speak in English, but people will sing phonetically because it means something to them. Yeah. Well, timeless is certainly the word that could be applied here. Matt, let's talk about another super popular Canadian crooner, Michael Bublé, friend, enemy, or frenemy? Frenemy, that's all there is, no. <laughs> uh, you know, when, 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 I was, when I was first starting out, there was definitely um, a, 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 an insecurity, um, wanting to get what he had. Um, as I got older, and having spent multiple times with him throughout the years, getting to know who he is, him and I are really cut from the same cloth. It's it's um, it's it's interesting. We you know I get a lot of journalists who have interviewed both both of us, um, and and you know again having spent time with him, there's crooners kind of carry this kind of like I don't care attitude where it's. We're so used to being criticized that at some point we just say, I don't give a crap. And mm -hmm. because we come from a, a, a lineage of, of singers who also had that, like when you, when, when you think of a Dean Martin or Frank Sinatra or Ella Fitzgerald, you never think of someone who was insecure. Now, they might have been, but they carried this thing of anything that helps the genre continue. The best part about my comparison is usually people can't afford him, so they hire me. Yeah, so. <laughs> definitely that's a, a friend. That's a great uh, marketing pitch. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you want now, a million dollars? Have you oh, ever okay. performed with him? 
Uh, have you I've performed only, with him? And only, only, only at parties. Only, only privately at parties, but never on a, a stage on TV together. Just, just hanging out, drinking, doing other things. And and how often do you get mistaken for him? And I'm sure he gets mistaken for you. So in the beginning, in 2003, 2004, uh, there was quite. There, there was. I'll tell you one funny story. Um, I forget what town it was, Canada, and uh, you know I. I, I was playing in town, so I was on the cover of the newspaper at the time, you know, and it was probably some reference to channeling Sinatra, you know, something like that. And I was, I think it was before soundcheck, our bus had arrived, I was walking, and these two girls come around and she goes, oh my God, can I get an autograph? Can I get an autograph? And I'm like, sure. So all we have is this, like this paper. And it was like, it wasn't even the paper I was on. And so I'm like, oh, what's your name? And Matt and sign it. And she goes, oh my God, thanks, Mr. Buble. Is that a fan? <laughs> <laughs> like, I had no idea. I had no idea. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm sure it happens the other way too. And I, I was thinking about another guy. Have you ever worked with or met uh, Harry Connick Jr.? Oh, of course. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Harry Connick was like my first idol, right? Because he was alive. Uh, and number two, he was, you know, kind of my age and he, you know, I, I used to drive around going to his shows and watching him perform. Um, again, the more people mention our names, the more the genre is, uh, spread there. I know there's a lot of people that say, oh, you shouldn't mention either people's names in the, in the same sentence, uh, cause it takes away focus from you. But to me, I don't think. Sinatra ever cared about Sammy Davis being in the same sentence. I mean, anything mm -hmm. that brings people, we can't be everywhere at once. And the truth is, is uh, our breed, when I say um, traditional uh, pop vocalists, is a dying breed. There's there's less and less and less of us. I mean, I, I don't, I, I wish there was someone who was 20 years my younger so I could go open for them. You know, maybe they'll be the <laughs> next thing. Yeah. Well, as you know, a, a rising tide will raise all boats, yeah. so it's good for everyone. In March 2010, Matt, you recorded the soundtrack to the TV series Call Me Fitz. Yeah. Uh, what was that experience like, and did you interact with star Jason Priestley? Yes, Jason and I hung out a number of times. Um, it was, you know, for me, the, the synchronization thing is, is, is close to my heart because it's kind of how I was introduced to Harry Connick Jr. from when Harry met Sally. Uh, him performing on that kind of launched his career. So um, when I was given the opportunity to record uh, the soundtrack for that, um, what am I going to say? I'm a performer. Absolutely. Getting a chance to, to to hang out with them and the other crew on the sets and going to, I think it was shot in Wolfsville, I think it's called, uh, out in Nova Scotia, uh, be on set with them. And, uh, you know, it's that's that old Hollywood. You know, those actors who were singers, who were, I don't know, car salesmen, whatever. <laughs> Very cool. I mean, he's he's another Canadian legend for sure. Now, Matt, you had a very unexpected audience with someone very unique, very much in the news right now. In fact, Queen Elizabeth's funeral is taking place as we record this. Oh, yeah. More, more than a decade ago, Queen Elizabeth came to Canada. How did you end up meeting and interacting with Her Royal Highness? This is a very interesting story of which probably I can't tell too much of it on, on uh, there's something I <laughs> okay. can't tell. Um, but, uh, a good friend of mine was working in an ad agency and said, Hey, you know, the queen's coming down to Pinewood studios, which is down 
um, by the by the lake and in Toronto and said, we're looking for uh, celebrities to come to the show. And I was like, well, listen, I'm not going to call people uh, on your behalf. They're like, well, you can maybe egg them on. I said, okay, listen, I'll call a bunch of people, but you got to give me tickets for this thing. And they're like, oh, well, I don't, you know, it's kind of, I said, okay, well, you can go call them yourself. Okay, 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 we'll give you tickets. <clears throat> so I called, you know, Jason Priestley. I, I called a bunch of other people. None were available. So, you know, like I called back the ad agency and said, hey, listen, I tried. Don't worry about the tickets. I, forget it. It's totally cool. I, I, didn't, I didn't bring you anybody. And they were like, no, 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 you can come. We'll, we'll get you a ticket. And I was like, okay, cool. Tickets? No, ticket. I was like, okay, cool. So I got off the phone and I was like, I get a ticket. And I was debating, do I go? Do I not go? Do I go? I was like, oh, okay, well, forget it. I'll just go. I'll just go. It's in the afternoon. I'll go. So I took an Uber down. Um, and, you know, I was a little nervous, but I also, you know, knew that um, it was uh, it was an experience. So I get there knowing nobody, zero people. And I walk in, and as soon as I'm walking in, you know, I go to the security, I see like a, an old classmate from 20 years ago. And I'm like, what are you doing here? They're like, well, what are you doing here? I was like, oh, I'm here with my wife. I'm like, how'd you get tickets? So I, I got tickets. So come in. So they, they had us hang in the, um, this like waiting room. And um, there was like a, an old uh, Canadian Forces fighter jet in there, and they're hanging out you know, handing out wine and hors d'oeuvres. And I was like, oh shit, I'm all by myself. I'm only one person. So let's drink. <laughs> what an opportunity. <laughs> so, you know, drinking and I have a blast. We're catching up on times. And um, I get my table assignment and I'm like at the back corner, like, you know, anyway, get get to the table, meet some lovely people. We just start talking again. I've, I've had some social lubrication. I'm feeling pretty good. And the queen yeah. walks in and, and uh, it's like, all rise for Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. You know, so we all get up and <clears throat> I get my iPhone. She's coming in. I'm like, snap, 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 snap. And I was like, wow, yeah. that was so amazing. I got, I was like within inches of the queen. It was so cool. Yeah. We're sitting down and then I get this tap on my shoulder and I'm like, I'm probably getting kicked out. This is like, uh, what did I do now? I was like, oh man, I probably should have been more discreet with the camera. They're like, and it's, um, um, excuse me, Mr. Dusk, there's a vacancy at the head table. The queen would like to you to join her. I was like, yes, let's go. <laughs> <clears throat> so I get to the table and it's, you know, Dalton McGinty and his wife and Norman Jewison and, and his, his partner and the Brofmans uh, are there. Um, and I get to the table, Prince Philip's there, the queen, they're all sitting and I come to the table like late. Yeah. And I have no idea what I'm supposed to do. I've been given no, as far as I knew, I was going to be at some end table having, you know, rubber chicken dinner and just drinking wine. Yeah. So I start like bowing. I'm like, hello, hello, <laughs> bowing up and down. Hello. How are you? How are you? Um, and the table, um, you know, everyone was very nervous about being around the queen. Like, what do I say? What do I do? And of course, again, I had uh, taken care of that issue. Um, <clears throat> I was speaking with Prince Philip and we, he was like, oh, what do you do? And I was like, oh, I'm a singer. And he's like, oh, that's great. How do you get started? I go, karaoke. You must love karaoke. You do karaoke, Prince Philip? 
<laughs> and it's like, oh, no, I, I, I don't. I mean, come on. Like, not even the shower. You don't like the microphone. <laughs> and he starts just like, he starts giggling. He's like, no, no. If anyone ever heard me sing, they'd never take instructions from me. And then to my right, um, the, the queen, you know, again, it's very, very, very quiet, very nervous. And I, we, I just start talking with the queen and I said, um, your highness, I go, uh, you know, I must, I must uh, commend you on this. This is amazing. How do you do these things constantly? They must be socially awkward. Like this is ridiculous. And I was literally speaking like this. It wasn't, um, um, and she's, and she's chuckled and she says, well, there's always a conversation to be had. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, it, it was, it was just a nice foil to the, I mean, some people might've said I was being disrespectful, but I always used the, the correct pronouns, but I just still thought it was trying to give some normalcy to, to, uh, a good, a good table. I think that's fantastic. And very few people can say they talked about karaoke with Prince Philip yes. and about <laughs> the uh, social interaction process with Queen other Elizabeth. Guests. That's, I don't think you can top that, Matt, but I, I guess I'm going to ask, are there any other that pop into your mind, interesting celebrity interactions, either that you worked with someone or simply you were a fan? I, 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 I'm, I'm going to leave it at that because now you got me thinking and I probably can't top that story. <laughs> <laughs> that's... I don't think many could. I mean, I, I mean, I've, I've hung out with Tony Bennett, you know, a gajillion times. You know, uh, uh, Paul Anka, like, they're all human, right? So the, these these social interactions I have with these these guys are all coming from a point of admiration, but also from, you know, what we're not supposed to say on in interviews. <laughs> yeah, well, I, like you say, they they must be thrilled to have the the next generation coming up and still um, paying proper respect to this music. What do you do, Matt, to manage your voice? You are getting older. Does it get harder to manage your voice? Do you, what precautions and what steps do you take when you're on tour? It's it's a good point. I I, I have noticed as I've I've gotten older that um, there is more of a, a routine that's required. Um, <laughs> I I drink right, so it's like uh, alcohol is a, you know a natural diuretic. It's not exactly the best for you however though our our group our touring band um you know back from the days of the the show the casino we started doing two shots of whiskey uh before every show and it's become this part of our routine and it feels very odd to go on stage without having a celebratory drink right mm -hmm. it's part of the whole deal so you know you gotta um most of the time it's 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 like drinking tons of water and trying not to talk before show. Um, the, the, it's, as you know, as, a, as an interviewer, requires a lot of talking, right? So yeah. you, need, you need more water to offset the uh, scotch whiskey. <laughs> yeah, that's good. You got a plan. That's the most important thing. Uh, Matt, when you're not performing, what do you like to do? Uh, where do you like to hang out in Toronto? Is there any hidden gems in terms of where you like to eat? So, you know, I, when I'm home, I'm home. Um, having lived in Toronto my whole life, it's nice sleeping in your own bed and getting a free coffee from the machine, you know, it's like, <laughs> it's, you don't have to pay three eighty five for a goddamn coffee. Um, yeah. still my, my favorite place, uh, top two places in Toronto still to go are the reservoir lounge down on Wellington. 
because I grew up there. It was like, uh, I mean, I've, I've, I've been there countless times and the Rex Hotel um, where they have jazz. I still think that live music is still a blessing, specifically after going through the pandemic, how much, um, you know, you can listen to it on speakers. However, um, being it in a room with people is still, those are my two two favorite spots. I mean, and listen, I'll catch a Jays game. Uh, <laughs> Fabulous. <they're> doing well. <laughs> and, and this could be our year, Matt. We might, we might get in the, uh, we might have a playoff run ahead of us. Maybe we'll get the home, the home turf for the wild card. Let's hope. That would be fababulous. Appreciate all your time today. And as we wrap up, I just want to ask you, you are resuming your tour imminently. Do you want to talk about that tour and, and who, who is with you, the size of the band, a, a little yeah, bit about the show? For sure. So the name of the song, uh, tour is, uh, Matt Dusk sings Sinatra. Um, it's pretty evident, so there's no guessing. Um, I've got a nice horn section and a rhythm section. Uh, a lot of storytelling, a lot of bad jokes. Um, we get the audience involved. Uh, we, ought, we, we like to say that our show is very interactive. It's kind of supposed to be like, I don't know if you ever remember, there was like Tony and Tina's wedding, the, mm -hmm. the show where it's, you know, I, I realize that screens are a big part of people's lives right now, i.e. I, I, this, this, this interview. However, though, having the social interactiveness with a crowd in a room, we really, really hammer that home. So the, the tour next is we're going to Quebec for a month, uh, or sorry, three weeks. And then uh, in November, uh, hit off to Vancouver Island and come all the way east back to Toronto. So on the road again. <laughs> fabulous i can't Look, wait it's great you get this break now with your family back on tour post tour matt what are you working on afterwards you got anything in the hopper i've got four albums in the works that's how crazy it is wow I, yeah you know the jazz genre has so many different like rabbit holes there's so many great artists like you know tony bennett that's done a certain catalog or nat king cole big band bossa nova so i've got all these um things i'm also working on a like a, a down tempo pop project because i grew up with hip uh, like down tempo house music and edm so hmm. yeah i've i've got i'm a i'm a lover of music so anything that keeps me being creative that'll never stop no matter where the stage goes excellent and matt where can we best follow you and know what you're up to facebook instagram website i'm not on tiktok i find that thing too addictive so um i have enough of those in my life yeah for sure okay and that is mattdusk.com well matt i want to thank you for your time and i wish you well as you continue the tour thank you for the time andrew and awesome to be talking to you today and to the listener thank you for listening to this episode of the toronto legends podcast on behalf of matt dusk i am andrew applebaum saying mahalo Hi, this is Candace Sampson, the voice behind What She Said. My show is your destination for stories that not only entertain, but also educate and empower. Every week, I spotlight strong female voices from across Canada, women who are changing the narrative and driving change. 
Don't miss out on these inspiring episodes. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, and Amazon Music, or head over to whatshesaidtalk.com. What She Said can also be heard on blasttheradio.com, Mondays at 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7 p.m. That's blasttheradio.com. It's time to dive into the stories that truly matter. I'm Andrea Askowitz. And I'm Allison Langer. And we are the hosts of Writing Class Radio, a podcast, but we are so much more. We have writing classes. So if you are looking for live online classes where you can join a community, write to a prompt, get feedback, and get better, check out all our classes at writingclassradio.com. And listen to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and at writingclassradio.com.